Hey there, welcome to the Ben Learns About Everything podcast, where I'm trying to learn as much about everything and anything as possible, because I think life is really interesting, and I just want to dive into more things. Um, Today, I've got my good friend Ben here. Hey, Ben. Hey. (laughs) I know it's a bit of a weird episode because we're both Ben, but Ben's a teacher, and Mm -hmm. um, he's been teaching for... How long have you been teaching now? It depends on what you count as teaching. So let's uh, say for, officially and out of college. How long have you been teaching? First official year out of college is this year. So it's a really big year for you. And <laughs> it's been pretty exciting. So um, today we're going to be learning about teaching and the school system. And I have a whole lot of things I want to learn from you. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Of course. Uh, I want to get started with what's the background that you had, which brought you into teaching? And what was the journey you went on, which took you from you know being a student and now becoming a teacher? What did that look like? Okay, it's a big question. I'm ready for it. <laughs> let, me, let me know. Like, where did it, or you can tell it, me about it, it, growing up and it, how did it develop? It all started when I was five years old. This is actually, I wrote a, uh, I, never, I never actually handed this out. I wrote a letter to, parents like the parents of my students and then didn't get around to giving it to them but I explained why I became a teacher in there uh and I put it briefly I shared a story of when I was five-ish years old I don't remember I read somewhere in a some random book I saw at the library that you can fill a Ziploc bag up with water and shove a pencil through it and then it doesn't leak out and my five-year-old self was like how does no you put a hole in it water leaks through holes obviously that's gonna it's gonna fall out and then i you know a couple of ziploc bags later i just shoved a pencil through the bag full of water and the water stayed in i was like oh the pencil's in the way and then you can pull it out a little bit and if you've done it well enough there's nowhere for the air to get in so if the bag can't fill it back up with air the water's not going to leak out and that was my first science experiment when I was like five years old. And I think the joy of like coming to that revelation after doing an experiment just hasn't left me. And that's what I kind of want to inspire other people to do. Uh, the other aspect that really led up to it that wasn't in the parent letter was, you know, junior, senior year of high school, when you're trying to figure out what to do with your life, I knew a couple of things about myself. I knew I loved science. I thought for a long time I was going to be some kind of scientist, but I also knew that I loved art and design and helping people. And I think, at least in my mind, teaching is a beautiful combination of those three particular things. At least teaching science obviously gets us science. Art and design, we can get into this later, but that's a huge topic. Uh, And the third one, helping people, well, that's your job. That's, That's, in my mind, the purpose of teaching. Well, that's awesome. And so I really, I really like that you started young with actually just becoming a, being a curious person, mm-hmm. trying something out. And then just the revelation you had, which really sparked something inside of you to grow and, and learn more. Right. right. Because I, that, I, that's something I until recently took for granted the fact that I was curious as a kid. And it, it took until I got out of high school to realize wait, most people aren't just curious in the same way I am. When, when you find those people, you get along with them because you're both curious and you can listen to each other talk for forever. 
because you just want to know more. And maybe you start a podcast about it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but some people just aren't like that. And, and part of stepping into this role of teaching in my mind now is teaching people how to be curious because I think that's so helpful to people in general. That's awesome. And so now you're at a school here in Grand Rapids mm -hmm. and you're teaching science to 10th grade. Is that right? Yes. Do I'm... you want to dive more into you know where you're at and what kind of classes you're doing right now? A little bit because this informs or I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but where I'm at right now is very closely related to my theories and my ideas about education. I'm at the Grand Rapids Public Museum School. We're a project-based school set in a museum, and we got this huge grant from what's called the XQ Institute, whose mission statement, this is not actually their mission statement, but it can essentially be boiled down to, let's create super schools. And they call it the Super School Initiative. So we get funding from there to sort of do extra projects to experiment and see how can we change education for the better. So 90% of what we do in, a, in the school is non-traditional. So it's, it's a very, very unique setting, which I'm in because I believe there ought to be innovation in our education system in America. And I don't really know where I was going with that, but like, so you're it's saying crazy that's... different. That's like your base. You you wanted a school to be one which matches with your ideas of what a school should look like. And yes. you said you you found that somehow in this museum school. Not even necessarily I want the school to match what I think school should be, but I wanted to be in a school that encouraged innovation in how we teach. And that's exactly what the museum school does. So the teachers have a huge amount of autonomy in terms of how they want to teach, what they want to teach, what they want to do, all that crazy kind of stuff that most schools are like, here is your curriculum, teach it in this way with some, some autonomy on the teachers, but I'm building my curriculum. I have full control over what experiences I can give to the kids. So I'll plan a, a field trip and the only person who needs to approve it is me and the person who does the scheduling for the school. Wow, that's that's amazing. And what's the traditional, how many people would you have to go through to plan a field trip in a different sort of setting do you know? Well, it needs to be cleared by someone at the district. It needs to be, I know in my high school, there were a certain number of field trips that were allowed to happen throughout the school year. So the teachers would have to compete for a slot and I don't remember the number, but like six field trips can happen this year. We need to all agree on what six those should be. And not all schools are like that, but that was my high school growing up. So sure, they were six good field trips. But if I were teaching there and I wanted to give the kids a unique experience that related to my class, I would need to convince all the other teachers that this experience should replace an existing field trip. And I think that's... On the extreme end of that, I don't, I'm not super familiar, but I don't think most schools have to go through that. But we have part of the contract the families sign when they send the kids to our school is at any point in time, the teacher can take their class anywhere within a defined radius around the school and just go. That's awesome. And then another caveat in there that if we go beyond that, we need permission slips 
just like a, a regular school, but it's way easier to plan. We have a fair amount of paperwork to do, but I want to take my kids to go see a particle accelerator. And there's one at MSU. It's an hour and a half drive away. As long as the school has the funds for the bus, we go. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So are you going to try and go ahead and do that trip um, sometime this year then with, with the kids? Or? Oh, yeah. I'm doing the paperwork tomorrow. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm glad like you found a place which really matches your your ideals um i think that's that's really cool mm -hmm. so do you want to dive a little bit more into your thoughts on the traditional school then you said you really like things which are innovative so let's right. talk about the american school system right now where right. it is what are things it's doing right because there is things it's doing very well absolutely and then what are some growth areas as well yeah i kind of mentioned this earlier Actually, before I even get into that, I want it to be clear that I don't think the American education system is broken. A lot of people will tell you our education system is broken. I don't think that's true. But I'm not someone who says, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Especially if something, if it's something as huge as a school, which takes care of america's young people until they're 18 for seven hours a day five days a week that that can have a huge impact on them so if we can do that better we should and that's that's my opinion on that but to get into the american education system as it stands it was established right around 1800 and obviously it's changed since then but the most recent change significant system-wide change in the American education system came around the 1950s with a woman called Madeline Hunter. She was a, a teacher, and I don't doubt that she was a good one, but she kind of invented what's now the standard for how to make a lesson. And I've it's been a while since I've used this, but I think I can remember all the terms. Essentially, you start with an anticipatory set. You do something to get everyone interested, which is good. I think that's obviously hook them. Uh, do this anticipatory set, then do whatever direct instruction to them. Uh, do a check to see if they understand. Uh, then do some guided practice where you're teaching them how to do it as they're doing it. Then maybe another check for understanding and then give them independent practice and then maybe check for understanding again and then give them homework and hopefully this is a flow that feels pretty standard for the school system because it's the most widely accepted form of planning lessons for school administrations in the U.S. So it's this very get them interested, teach them, have them do, but teach them while they're doing, and then let them do it on their own with checking to make sure they understand scattered in there. Which, for some things, works great. It's phenomenal. But to me, that's always been like... If the, if, if the anticipatory set in the Madeline Hunter verbiage, if the hook isn't good, then no one has a reason to learn. Then everything's riding on getting everyone super interested right away. Which you're never going to get everyone interested right away. There are always going to be kids that are like, oh, you teach science? I don't like science. You teach math? I'm not good at math. It's going to take more than 
a 15-minute activity at the beginning of the day to make them really want to learn. So what I think is a better alternative is giving the kids more autonomy with their learning and letting them kind of take control of what they learn and how they learn it. One of the newer systems for that is actually, I don't know if it was standardized or just introduced to the UK somehow. Uh, don't know the, the technicals of it, but it's called the 5E method in the UK. And the 5Es stand for engage, again, do something to hook them, explore where the kids explore and you introduce them to this topic and say, okay, great, play around. So if I'm teaching them about fluid dynamics, I give them some maybe hydraulic things. I give them some fluids to play around with and they just play for a while. And then the third E is explained where they try to make sense of what they've just experienced. And then the teacher can can clarify and give a more technical description once the kids have made up their mind about what happened. And the the fourth is, oh, geez, I'm going to forget it now. Is it, It's not expand. Elaborate. It's elaborate where you do something else with the knowledge to sort of solidify it in your mind because you're doing more than just one thing with it. And the fifth is kind of scattered throughout there, which is evaluate. You're always evaluating to see how they're doing, if they're picking up on what you want them to. So it's this very explorative nature to learning, which maybe it's just my curious mind loves exploring stuff, but it really puts the power in the hands of the kids to just play. Because I believe kids need to play. And if once you work learning into that, then you're that's some great teaching. But if they think they're just playing around with little hydraulic things, whatever they are, and then at the end they have a robust understanding of hydraulics and, and fluid dynamics, whoa. Like that's far more powerful of a learning experience than, hey, this thing's interesting because this. Let me tell you about it for 20 minutes, okay? Here are some homework problems. I'll do the first five with you, then you do the rest. That's a very standard lesson in traditional education. That's really cool. I, I'm really liking the sound of your school. I think it would be one which I would have also enjoyed, um, you know, participating in growing up, which is which is really cool. Um, one of the thoughts which I have about education in general is that it's a really good foundation to introduce you to new ideas. But I think mm. you don't really at least I personally don't learn that much unless I start looking into the stuff my myself. So mm -hmm. I let school itself be uh, something which I can become curious about the topics through. And then if I enjoy something, I'll dive into it more in my free time right. and really take responsibility for learning anything myself. You know, I don't put that burden on, on the school. Mm -hmm. And um, I was wondering like, if you have any thoughts about that as well, like, the, the role of school as is it where all of your information should come from? Should it be an aid or how does that work? How does learning and the school come together? Because, you know, the school when it was originally created was to teach basic, um, basic understanding to everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can operate on a higher, higher level. Um, and where, like, what are the limits of that? How does that go? And what does that look like? Sure. I think the school system, when it was established, was established to create 
better citizens than if it doesn't exist. And I think that's still true of our education today. The purpose of the school system is to make our general population better than if they hadn't gone to school, which I believe our education system is doing that, which is why I say it's not broken. But the the trouble comes when you want to get better and you have this this drive to make this system better because then is when you ask the question okay what's really the purpose how do we what exactly do we want to do to make them better citizens because when the school system was established and even into the 1950s uh, when the madeline hunter lesson plan came out the the purpose of what we needed in our society i'll put it that way what we needed was informed citizens who can do things like factory tasks like working in a in a factory we had a huge need for people who could do that now i think being an american citizen if you want to thrive in your postgraduate life in your job you need to be innovative, you need to be creative, you need to learn how to work independently, and you need to get some sort of drive to to work harder and to do better than your colleagues. And then is when you really start succeeding in adult America, we'll put it, at least in most career fields. Uh, and if that's what we're trying to create in kids, the way to do it is not inform them of important cultural things, it's not teach them how to sit down and obey the teacher. Obviously, it's good for people to respect authority, but if, if we can produce citizens who are both creative and independent thinkers, not only will they be better at their job, but they'll also be significantly better at enacting social change, which I think takes this... I don't, I don't want to be too controversial here, but I think most social change takes people who are a little bit rebellious and i don't think we should take school and teach people how to be rebellious but we should teach them to have their own thoughts and opinions and then teach them how to actually communicate those in a civil way which isn't it it just isn't the same as sitting in your desk for 45 minutes and listening to your teacher that's not what they learn in that setting in that setting, if if you're in social studies learning about anything controversial, you learn to just listen to the teacher, which if you have a strong opposing opinion, generally, that's not what you want to do. And kids need to kind of get that energy out and have a space where they can safely disagree with someone. So I think that's that's really important. And that's one of the focuses of the curriculum I'm building for the spring semester. And I forgot what your original question was, but I hope I answered it. No, I, I think that's like really helpful for helping us understand like where you're coming from and also, you know, where the school system could could change and even benefit in the future if it took up some of these sort of um, ideals. So that's that's really helpful. Um, next up, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit about the transition from being a student into a teacher and kind of how that felt for you. I've always been curious about people, you know, you think of your teachers, at least I did when I was growing up as people who really know what they're doing. 
They've mm-hmm. got their life together and they're an expert in, in a particular subject. Um, but now as I'm kind of coming towards the end of my college career and my friends are becoming teachers, I'm just curious about how that, you know, do you have an emotional response to that? Does it feel natural or is it kind of a weird transition going from being a student to a teacher four years after you were there in high school? <laughs> that's that's my my question. Sure. I think for me, it's probably more natural than, than most people you'll talk to because like I said, I've always been interested in science. So I found out ways to get good at that essentially. So then in high school, if we had a substitute teacher in science class, I would kind of like lead however many kids I could through whatever we're doing that day. And then in college, I would tutor all my friends and get paid in cookies because I thought that was a, a good deal. Um, and then through my internships, it, it was sort of this staircase up from just helping my friends in high school to tutoring my friends in college to having this internship working with kids now as a teacher figure and now finally taking the reins on my own classroom. So for me, it was a very natural thing because I've, I've just had this drive to help people learn for a long time and now it's like finally satisfying that and I'm like yes yeah I'm doing it I'm helping people learn this is what I've wanted for the past five years that's awesome I'm really glad like the school here which you went through the college it sounds like it was a really big part of that but not only that but also your own initiative right right instead of just waiting for the transition to happen you're actually kind of going through the different steps the whole time and becoming a better you know, teacher in, in a, in that regard. Right. And I think that's true for, for most people who become teachers, college does what it can to prepare you to teach. You you get internships, you get experiences in, in safe spaces of learning how to teach and, and getting some practice in. But at some point in time, you just need to jump into the fire. And that's what, that's when you'll really learn. Like we mentioned this, earlier before we started the podcast education does what it can going to class about teaching does what it can but there are limits to it and no amount of schooling will ever prepare you for everything that's going to happen in the classroom so what you need to learn is how to improvise in the situations where a kid has been bad all hour and then you find out after treating him however you would normally that he just watched his dad get shot the night before and he's at school because it's easier for him than being at home and dealing with his family and all those emotions and you're like wow I just treated you like you were just disrespecting me and then you feel awful about it you're like I need to rethink how I manage situations where 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 kids just aren't acting right and sure there are theories that can help with that and there's a certain amount of study of how to manage a classroom that will kind of prepare you for that. But the best way to learn is just practically doing it and being with kids and learning how they operate by observing them. And I think that's just far more powerful than uh, any, any class could be. That's awesome. And it sounds like the relationship between each student and the teacher becomes very important like you said yeah it's interesting because your role is two parts it's one to teach the entire class and help the entire group come to a particular understanding or curiosity but you also need to be paying attention to each individual which 
I guess sounds a little bit more like if I was a manager of a company, I'd have to be taking care of the entire group, but also more on some kids, you know, some, right. I was going to say kids, kids but, but so my workers, manager, right, yeah. who, who may need extra assistance. Which and, I mentioned earlier, I work at a project-based school. So the majority of the learning that the kids do happens by me saying, okay, you need to, to create this project. It's going to require this knowledge, but this is your goal. Create this infographic that explains this or create this podcast exploring this topic. Then they're like, oh, to do that, we need to learn this stuff. Uh, but they, they reach that at different points. So there's this huge, huge word in education right now, which is differentiating your instruction and making your instruction fit more than just the standard person. You should adapt your lessons to help out the kids who can't read as well. You should adapt your lessons to help out the kids who aren't as strong in math because it's not math class, certain things like that. But then once you get into the project-based realm, suddenly you have no choice but then to differentiate the way you teach because everyone's making a project. And if you give them any amount of freedom with what their end product can be, they're all going to have different needs which is why I almost wish I would have gotten the chance to take business administration classes in college because now I'm having to learn how to manage this group of 25 people working in segregated groups. No, I shouldn't say segregated, in separate groups on, on different projects all around the same topic, but I need to figure out how to manage, make sure they're still being productive, make sure their needs are getting met, so my role as a teacher suddenly becomes a manager of learning rather than a teacher of content. I really like that manager of learning. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing buzzword, you know, right. maybe the next one. Next that one, one just came up. to me. There are buzzwords for that, but that I think that best describes in my mind what a good model for education is. The the educator is not a teacher of content. They're a manager of the student's learning and they're People like to rhyme stuff. The traditional juxtaposition is the sage on the stage who's just giving all their knowledge to you or the guide on the side. Because nice. <laughs> that one's all that one's all catchy. You're guiding them through and you're on there. You're right next to them, right? Yeah, like a teammate or something right. as well. That's that's really, really cool. And so do you do you find, you know, managing so many different students 25 is a really big number. 25 in one class. And then I teach three of those classes. If, if you were a manager at a company, you would maybe, you know, like a smaller manager, you'd be managing maybe a couple of employees. You know, mm -hmm. where I worked, it would be maybe be five or six people. And a lot of them would be either on one or two projects. In mm -hmm. my experience, that's, I'm sure managers do more than that. But 25 just seems like a really big number and especially many projects. How do you handle that? Is it easy for you? Is it exhausting? Or have you found a good system to, to do that? It's definitely not easy. I'll tell you that. But it's it's really fulfilling because if our goal as a school is genuinely to make sure our kids have the tools they need to succeed when they graduate, part of that is how to work on a team, right? How to complete projects. And so as much as we can mirror what uh, what what their actual jobs will look like later within the school, 
I I would like to to aim for that. So that's why I think the the project based way of doing it makes a lot of sense for a school. But with twenty five kids in the classroom, seventy five kids total, that's a lot as the the teacher to manage. So just for my own personal sake, I dove really deep into figuring out what software to use because we're you know technology whatever it's important they learn technology so we're using the software to manage their projects so it's super easy to kind of organize everything so at least i'm organized i can get to what i need to quickly and then it's just going around and helping them as 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 quickly but also effectively as i can so i don't need to come back and help so we're teaching them some level of autonomy of if you have a question ask the people around you if the people around you don't know then as a group raise your hand and i'll come over and and assist however you need which has had varying degrees of it uh, of success but my role as the manager there are certain things they need they need structure and instructions for how to complete their project so i set that up at the beginning of the unit and i say cure your instructions for the project and try to be very clear about this is what I need it to contain in the end product so that they at least have that. And then beyond that, I've never managed a, a, a corporate team, but I imagine what I do is similar. Like on Friday, just this week, I implemented something where I check up on their progress. And it was a 90 second meeting with each of them because there are 25 of them. We have an hour together. Great. I can have a 90 second meeting with each of my employees and I call them over and I pull up their project in our software. I say, you've made great progress this week. This is awesome. I love what you did here. Is there anything I can do to help you next week? And I, no, we're great. Fist bump. Go away. Next, you come up, pull up their project. Oh, you haven't done anything this week. I'm sorry that I let it get to this point. Let's make a plan for next week so that this isn't a trend that, that that continues. So it's things like that. And there are certain days I do set aside that I realize everyone needs to learn this. Let me give some more direct instruction about the photoelectric effect and why electromagnetic radiation is a particle, which are awesome topics to be able to dive into with 10th graders. <laughs> That's that's really cool. It sounds like you do a really good job of it. And I think a lot of that comes from how invested you are in the role of your job. Hmm. You know, I think, um, you know, I don't want to generalize too much, but a lot of people aren't fully passionate about their job or all in when they get to work. Right. Um, do you think you can do teaching if you're not fully invested? Not does well. that hurt the students? What does that look like? And you know, how does that work on a, you know, a lot of people are going to school to become teachers, but if they don't have the passion, are they going to be able to make it? Or do you think passion is like a real key to being a good teacher? I would say if you're trying to go into teaching and you don't just have a passion for helping your students, you will survive as a teacher, but you will do more harm than good to the students because there's the way a teacher can affect a student is insane. If a teacher walks into school believing that their students don't actually matter and if they teach well or if they don't, it's just their job that they need to get through, the students will pick up on the message that they are not important. 
the, and they'll learn that as part of their identity because especially I'm in a high school setting. So that's kind of where my frame of mind is. The biggest thing they struggle with in high school is who am I? And answering this question about their own identity, if the consistent message they're getting from the adults that they see seven hours a day, five days a week is you don't actually matter. What is that going to do to them as, 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 as a person? So I think your passion should really be about helping kids become independent, strong adults. And then you'll, that'll take you so much farther than everything else. Yeah, it's a really important job. And I, I think a lot of people do know that teachers have a big amount of value and as well as coaches, you know, the number sure. of people that you are influencing on a weekly or day to day basis is okay. going to be a lot higher than a lot of other positions. You know? Right. And on the topic of influencing people, if I can hijack this, it it's it's not quite influencing, but what I've seen is the biggest question that teachers still have, no matter how long they're teaching, is how can I motivate kids? How can I motivate my students to do this or to do more or to want to learn? And I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question because in my mind, no one's going to want to learn if their teacher doesn't care about them. No one is going to want to learn if they believe they can't no one no one is going to get motivation through i'll say it the traditional ways we we try to motivate them like if we're motivating kids with starbucks for or or uh, starburst candy something small with jolly ranchers for completing their homework great that's going to be awesome if the first time you do that that's going to work so well the second time you do that it's it's going to still work well probably the third fourth fifth time you do that they're just used to getting jolly ranchers and it's not a big deal anymore so any kind of motivation you try to give the students if if it's coming from an external source and this is a, a big if i can name drop elfie cone is is a education thought researcher right now whose theory is extrinsic motivation always fails at some point extrinsic being from outside of the person so if i'm motivated if i'm going to be motivated to do something in a sustainable way it has to come from within myself no amount of external rewards will provide me with the same motivation as an internal sense of this is something i want so then the question is as teachers if we want to motivate kids what we need to do is teach them how to motivate themselves. So how do we do that? And that's a, that's a difficult question to answer, but I think it comes down to caring about them, showing them that they have the capacity to learn. Because if, if a kid's coming in and consistently doing poorly in your class and then getting reprimanded for it, every, that, that just sucks for him. Like, not only does he feel dumb because he can't figure out the content you're teaching, he also is under this constant fear of being reprimanded by the teacher because he's not doing well enough. That's not a, that's not a motivating position to be in 
other than for the kids who are going to go, I need to avoid this poor situation. I'm going to do that by trying harder to learn, which I'll let you in on a secret is not every kid. That's not how every kid thinks in that situation. Most will try to just shut down and avoid that situation as much as possible. So I think ultimately caring about the kids is the most important part. Then when it comes down to practically, how do you do that? That's the tough question. The easy question is, should I care? The answer is yes. The difficult question is, how do I help them effectively? And that's, that's, that's what everyone struggles with. I like that a lot. I think you're saying once you find the intrinsic motivation, then the students will be able to do anything. Right. You know? that, that's my view. If, if, if I can teach my students how to motivate themselves, I have done my job. Regardless of whether or not they have learned science, they will be able to learn what they need in the future because they're motivated to do it. Obviously, learning my classwork is going to be a symptom of, of, of that, but I, I am far more concerned about kids learning to motivate themselves than motivating them so that they can get through this unit with a good grade. Okay, I was going to bring this up next then. So you said that, um, you know, students can have a really hard time when they start getting into a cycle of you're having bad grades and you feel like you're unable to learn and Mm -hmm. you kind of start Mm -hmm. on a spiral of, well, maybe I'm not able to do this work and you lose motivation and it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And, And a lot of people can put the blame on the grading system as a whole. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about about that at all. Um, I'll, I'll just throw this out there and say that this is what it is. At the school I teach at, we don't have letter grades, which is a controversial thing in, in some education spheres. But our philosophy as a school is once you learn it, you've learned it. It doesn't matter how you got there or how long it took if it takes you six years to get through high school dang it you learned the same stuff you may have learned it better than someone who took four years to get through high school it just took you longer you you deserve the same so our scale of of grading is not yet proficient or excel so if you get proficient in every topic we're trying to teach you you graduate period they're, they're in the traditional school setting. Okay, we want to teach you about World War II. You can completely fail that unit and still pass social studies class because you did well in the other stuff, but the school has failed to, to teach you that aspect. Our school is completely different than that. If you don't succeed in the World War II unit in social studies, whatever year you end up learning that, for us that's sophomore year, do it again junior year. Do it again senior year. Do it over the summer. Do it in an after-school program. Do it on Saturdays. But dang it, you're going to learn. I love that. I love that so much. And um, I, I really do. I think that's kind of really innovative. And um, I hope it's working out really well for the, the school and the students. You so know? far. I mean, managing it is interesting. And there's still, we're a newer school. So there are a lot of questions of, okay, the kid gets proficient in everything. What should their GPA be? Because we still need to assign that. Well, the kid's natural response is a 4.0. We did everything. 
But we have this level above proficient, which is Excel, which is going above and beyond and showing that you have a deeper or broader understanding of this topic than we told you you needed to get. So then the natural thing is to say, oh, well, if they excel in everything, that's a 4.0. If they get proficient in everything, that's somewhere somewhere less than a 4. But then we need to really step back and say, is it realistic for us to, to say a 4.0 is learning more than we are required by law to teach them? Are we allowed to say you need to learn more about every single topic in school than anyone in any school that's not ours if you want to get a 4.0 then that seems unfair so there's still a lot of these 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 questions with the model of translating our grading system not yet proficient excel into something that's understandable by particularly the college admissions people that are going to ask what's your gpa and when you say i got a 3.3 because i did i trying to pick my verbiage here carefully but because I fulfilled all of the requirements for every rubric for every single project and I have a 3.3, that's hard to have that conversation with the college admissions people because generally they'll just be like, if it's a high-end college, they'll see 3.3 and an okay SAT score, move on to the next person. When if you sat down with them, they would realize, oh, you got a 3.3 because you were proficient in most of the, the units but a couple of them you excelled in because you wanted to have an impact on your community through your school project. That's huge. That's huge. So, but like, how do you have an impact on your community? Just to give an example, when, we, when we're teaching chemistry and need to teach them about polar nonpolar bonds, we also teach them about art that they can create and then sell to raise funds to make soap. And we learn how soap works because it's super important for polar nonpolar substances is how soap is both. So it can clean anything, right? We raised all those funds so we can make a bunch of soap. Let's donate it to a homeless shelter. That's amazing. And, and, and you can earn an Excel credit. I, I don't know if this is still true, but maybe a way that you earn an Excel credit is to create a different scent of soap or create a nicer soap or create more soap for the people in our community well to me that's far more valuable than an extra credit point yeah so I, i've thought about this before in a really interesting manner okay you have people who go to school and they do a lot of imaginary projects to mm -hmm. say to to further learning you know mm -hmm. so you might um you know, if you're in physics, you'll make a model car mm -hmm. and then you'll race it down the slope and you're learning mm -hmm. and it's exciting and interesting. And if you think about um, kids and the amount of hours that they are at school and the amount of hours that teachers are there teaching them, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we, you know, really took the schooling system and connected it with the community to do a lot of bigger projects. And what you just said sounds exactly like that. Students yeah. are doing things which are impacting the community and they're learning at the same time. And that seems really beautiful to me. Instead of doing a, you know, a race car, which is fun, and you might learn about it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have any impact on the culture on a larger scale. Yeah. And to me, that's the dream. You can imagine, I, I love my school so much. You can imagine that, 
our school is sat on a three-legged stool and it's held up by the three legs of the the museum context we're in a museum so we do as much as we can with artifacts and curation and whatever whatever the second leg is design thinking we want them to learn to think like a designer like an engineer and learn how to create their own stuff and the third leg is place-based education where everything we do as much as we can we put it into the context of Grand Rapids and not every project does those not every project does that well not every project does all three of those things but as much as we can we're encouraged by our administration and I think for most of the teachers encouraged by our own motivation to have an impact that we try to find ways to impact the community with our teaching because we have more manpower than most institutions. The American school system, the amount of manpower that we have, come on, if we can use that, if we can leverage that to make a positive impact in our country, in our city, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's what we should try to do if it's possible. Yeah, I I really agree on that. And I think we could keep talking about this, you know, for a very long time. (laughs) And I I really have enjoyed listening to... um, a lot of your thoughts and I have learned a lot today already <laughs> not only about um you know what it's like being a teacher and kind of managing is what we came to the conclusion in, students, in my circumstance right yeah. in your circumstances and how schools can be different and maybe what schools could look like in the future if we were really dreaming you know and right uh we talked about what's the role of school as well and then uh also touched a bit on, you know, your journey getting into it. And so I really appreciate a lot of what you said today. And I'd love to have you come back on some time on the podcast. Um, but yeah, we do have to cut it off because we hit the limit. But Can I can I share something to end the of podcast? Course. I really want to hear the, it. I told you before we started, I don't think I mentioned this well. We were recording, but the, the reason I got into education is because I love science. I love design and art. I love helping people. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to whatever, whatever, whatever. I almost gave this all up to become some type of artist, graphic designer, UI, UX design, whatever, whatever. But I chose not to when I read a quote from Vincent Van Gogh. And I'm not going to get this perfect, but in essence, he was writing to, to one of his friends and he it was kind of about and take this with a grain of salt because of, of Van Gogh's like mental health stuff that he was dealing with, but he was almost discouraged as an artist and he believed I'll never be a great artist when he compared himself to Jesus of Nazareth. He said the Jesus of the Bible was a greater artist than anyone, myself included, striving to be an artist right now. And this is, again, paraphrasing. But he said that because he 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 gave up trying to create statues out of stone or, or, or use paint to on a canvas or anything like that. And he created an art. And I think these, these are Van Gogh's words. He created an art in a form scarcely understood by our modern, anxious, and obtuse minds, but he made out of living men immortals his canvas was people and just seeing education 
through that lens of impacting people is art, that's what kept me going.